doing this evening? Staying warm? Got a little cool this, this morning and all day long, so hope you all are preparing for some snow maybe, or at least that's what I hear, and we'll see. Then we'll know if those weather people are right or not. Well, this evening, I first of all want to ask you to keep uh, the Osuna family in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, in prayer. We're going to be going this uh, Friday to uh, do the memorial services for uh, Pastor Manuel, a good dear friend of our ministry here, and... Uh, and uh, ask, uh, please ask the Lord to continue to give comfort to Maria, to Janelle and uh, Andy, the children, and, and then the children of the children, all the grandchildren that are going to be there, as well as the uh, family from California that uh, is going to be there in Phoenix this weekend. Pastor Sean is over there uh, and getting ready. He's going to be doing the, the music. Pastor Manuel requested Sean would do the music and asked me to do the memorial service for him. So it's quite an honor to do that. Well, new year, new message. The same book, Revelation chapter 2. <laughs> so let's turn there. <clears throat> last uh, time we were, or last week actually, we were in uh, uh, the first seven verses of chapter 2 as we were looking at the letter that, uh, s- that Jesus sent to the church in Ephesus. And tonight we're going to move on to the next four verses, which is verses 8, uh, which are verses 8 and 11 or through 11, as we examine the letter to the church of Smyrna. The seven churches of Asia Minor, each one of those seven churches, there were many other churches as we've talked about in the past, but for sake of giving us a complete picture of the message of Jesus Christ to these churches, the revelation given to them, the prophecies given to them, as well as the warnings, the, the uh, uh, ex- exhortations, the admonitions, the commendations, as well as the condemnations, are given to seven churches that, in fact, picture the whole of the church of Jesus Christ from the start of the church to the time in which we are continuing to carry the message of the gospel in the modern church today. So all of the characteristics found in those seven churches we see happening throughout all of the ages as well as in modern times. The church of Ephesus was the loveless church because they had left their first love. And so the Lord call them to remember, to repent, and then to repeat what they had done at the beginning, which was to return to their first love. 
or else their candle would be turned out. The candle, of course, was the symbol of the church as it was lit. If the candle was burned out, it was because the church was no longer alive. And we'll talk about that church in a moment when we get toward the end of this study tonight. But in verses 8 to 11 now, we hear the words of Jesus given to John as to the message to be given to the, the second church, which is the church in Smyrna. And so it says, And unto the, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write. And remember that the angel could also be the messenger or the pastor of the church. So write this to the angel or to the pastor of the church of Smyrna. These things, and I guess I should be paying more attention to what I'm supposed to be doing up here. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, if the first mark of a true and living church is fervent love, because that was really what Jesus was trying to awaken the church of Ephesus about, they began with that fervent love and then they left that love and they were told to return to it. But if the first mark of a true and living church is fervent love, then the second mark is the ability to endure suffering. If we follow along from the message given to uh, Ephesus and now the message given to Smyrna, being willing to suffer or sacrifice for another proves the genuineness of that love. And this was certainly something that Jesus had taught his disciples throughout his uh, earthly ministry, but in a greater sense, as he was preparing to give his life in death, as he was preparing to suffer for his beloved. He says in John 15, verses 12 through 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Well, evidently, the, the believers in Smyrna had not, like the Ephesians, left their fervent love for Christ, for they were prepared to suffer for Jesus Christ. In essence, they were prepared to suffer for their brothers and sisters in Christ. More than likely, these Christians, like Peter and John, Rejoice because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus Christ. If you remember back in the, in the book of Acts, after the apostles 
were arrested by the Sadducees for preaching the gospel and also working miracles among the people in the temple, which by the way, the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles, and yet they were being told miracles are happening in the temple. So what do they do? Rather than rejoice, they arrest the apostles and then they take them before the council. And this is what was said of the apostles in in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. It says, and to him they agreed, and that's speaking of Gamaliel, who had, the high priest had stood up and said a few things about how they had to be very careful with Peter and John. And so to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, so notice, rather than just kind of listen to what this high priest said, they went ahead and beat the apostles. That's real loving, isn't it? They beat them, and then they commanded, commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, and notice this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not, to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. So the church of Smyrna was in like manner a suffering church. And I'm sure that in the midst of their suffering, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Now that's a hard concept to try to understand today. If we find ourselves in some sense of persecution because we're presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ and somebody says something bad to us or, or does something bad at us, you know, we, we might respond like, why are they doing that? We, we don't understand what Jesus a long time ago said. That if they hated me... They're going to hate you. You have to understand that. So because we live in a, in a more or less free country nowadays, it's, it's becoming less free now, especially with the gospel, especially with the word of God in this country. But nonetheless, we're still here free to meet like we're doing tonight. But... We, we live in this country, and, and, and uh, we live in the freedoms of the West and all of that. So a lot of times we don't understand fully what's going on with persecution in the church throughout the world. That's why I've always encouraged you to go to persecution.org for the Voice of the Martyrs website and look at what's happening in the world today against our brothers and sisters, what they're doing to them. Because we have to wake up to the very fact that Jesus made it clear, the apostles made it clear, we're going to suffer for the name of Christ. Well, the church of Smyrna was a suffering church. They obviously had experienced past afflictions and were going to encounter severe trials, so they were encouraged to endure. A suffering church needs to look to their Lord and they need to look to their future. A suffering church has a future... As long as we realize that the Lord is the one who's going to be with us through whatever suffering we go through. So before we begin to look at the church of Smyrna, let me, let me remind you 
of the seven key elements that are used by the Lord in addressing most of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And so you have that uh, whole list that I presented to you last week. There's a salutation, there's Christ's identification as sender. Those two you will see here. Uh, there's a statement regarding the condition of the church, which we more normally call the commendation. And that is also what we find here. Uh, then there is a comment and exhortation, uh, but that turns out to be a condemnation, but you won't find that here. And then there is a promise or a threatened coming. We'll see more of a promise than a threat. Uh, an admonition to heed, which is in every one of the letters to every church, which is he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then, of course, a promised blessing at the end. So what we find different, as I said in the letter to the church of Smyrna, is that there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation given and no threat given towards them in this church that is a suffering church. No condemnation, no threats to this church from the Lord. So for purposes of clarity and simplicity, we're going to follow just a little slightly different outline, even though all of those other things are going to be seen except for condemnation and threats. And that's this outline for the Church of Smyrna for tonight. We're going to begin with Christ's salutation and identification, all in verse 8. And then there's a commendation given in verse 9. So it's all clear cut. There is a command in verse 10 and a commitment in verse 11. So we're going to look at those four things tonight. But uh, for the most part, you're going to see that uh, six of the seven key elements are mentioned to this church. Except for what? No condemnation. So first, let's look at some characteristics of the city. Because it's important for us to understand what Smyrna was like in the time of John. Uh, the city of Smyrna, which is today modern Izmir, Turkey. Izmir, by the way, if you notice, uh, Smyrna, Izmir, very similar in sounding. Uh, in, in how uh, the name is actually the same. Izmir has the same meaning, as it were, as uh, Smyrna. It's located 35 miles due north up the coast from Ephesus. Now, we'll go back to a map that we've had before. And I get another toy to play with. If you remember, Smyrna's right there. There's Ephesus. So you see the proximity of Ephesus and Smyrna right there. So it's just uh, due north of, of Ephesus. And then there's another map that I need to show you so you get an, an even better picture. I don't have to point to that, right? But I, I will because I have the toy to do it. But you'll notice there, uh, as uh, there was this river that we talked about that Ephesus was on and the water source that they have, very important in major cities, especially wealthy cities like Ephesus, there was also one uh, over here, the Hermas, which is very close to Smyrna. And that was also uh, the reason why Smyrna would be, as well, a wealthy city. But it would be, as you notice, after having seen the other map, and again you see the, uh, the way that uh, there is that route that goes to all of these churches. It would be the next city on the postman's route, as it were, that he would reach on his circular itinerary. So Smyrna was a wealthy city, second only to Ephesus. 
And if again, when you look at the map, you notice that they're both port cities. And, and that was the reason why there was a lot of wealth there, because that was the city where all the goods from other places came in. And so it's considered by historians as the most exquisite city that the Greeks ever built because the the city of Smyrna was built by the Greeks. Now, it had an excellent protected natural harbor, and like Ephesus, a good road gave access to the interior of Asia Minor. It was a planned city with wide streets surrounded by hills which were topped by temples for every known heathen god. On the side of one hill in Smyrna was an amphitheater large enough for over 20,000 people. If I remember, I'll talk a little bit about that amphitheater as we talked about the amphitheater in Ephesus, where Paul had been. But this would be actually many years later when a man by the name of Polycarp, he was a Christian who lived in, uh, in Smyrna or in that particular region. But uh, this amphitheater was constructed with one main purpose, and this is a little bit of the difference between this amphitheater and the one in Ephesus. It had this one purpose, and the purpose was emperor worship. Emperor worship. By the time the book of Revelation was written, emperor worship was compulsory. In other words, it was required for all to worship the emperor. It was enforced, and it was unavoidable unless you moved away. But the churches of Jesus Christ were persecuted because they would not bow down to Caesar and burn incense in the temple dedicated to Kaiser Curios, which of course means Caesar is Lord. They would not bow down to Caesar. Now consider, if you will, the word Smyrna. In the word Smyrna, it it has a, a... various meanings all connected it means port of myrrh uh, literally port of myrrh and uh, myrrh itself that is within the word also means bitterness but it was so named both ways it was so named because of the export trade in this product called myrrh. Myrrh was a gum resin product taken from a certain tree that was an important ingredient in several compounds that was used, in fact, for incense. It was used in many other ways as well. If you go back to the Gospels, you realize that myrrh was, was, uh, was used when they dipped this, this sponge into wine and myrrh to give to Jesus when he was on the cross. When Jesus was buried, the preparation for the body was done with many different spices and all kinds of other compounds, and one of them was mentioned, and it was myrrh. And uh, once it was used, and, and we'll talk about how it was, how it was going to be uh, actually uh, uh, used in a a very uh, proper way. Myrrh by itself, the plant by itself, did not give the fragrance. The fragrance of myrrh would only come when it was crushed. 
For example, some, uh, you got to remember just last week, some of you were so excited because you finally got to one of your first Christmas Eve parties and they had a big olla of menudo, right? And, and of course, you know, you have to prepare it yourself. You don't want anybody to prepare it for you because you, you, know you know the compounds to put into it to make it better. So you take that oregano and you put it in your hand and then you do this, right? Why? Because it releases the oils and it releases the fragrance of it and you put it in the menudo and then you've got a smile on your face. Unless you put the onions in it and then you're, you know, nobody's going to kiss you under the mistletoe. All right, so anyway, the other people don't have the smile, but you do because you like onions in your menudo. I don't know why we're going in that direction. But here's the thing. That was last week. We'll have to wait till next year to do it again. Anyway, so that's, that's the thing. It has to be crushed. We have to understand that about this. So in its, in, its, in its regular state, there was a lot of bitterness. But once it is released, and however it was used, whether as an incense or as some kind of a, of a compound to help in embalming and all of that, it was crushed to release a fragrance that was actually very sweet. So, I got ahead of myself, but I thought I'd better explain it. But it must be noted that in 196 BC, Smyrna built the first temple to Dea Roma. Dea Roma. That literally means the goddess of Rome. The spiritual symbol, in other words, of the Roman Empire. And once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a step to worship the dead emperors of Rome, which then they began to do. Then it was only another small step to worship the living emperors, and then to demand such worship as evidence of political allegiance and civic pride. So in 23 AD, Smyrna won the privilege. Smyrna, that city, won the privilege over 11 other cities to build the first temple to worship the Emperor Tiberius Caesar, making Smyrna the leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. It was during the reign of Domitian, which was 81 to 96 AD, that he demanded worship under the title of Curios, which of course means Lord, from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of political loyalty. And as we have previously learned from church history, it was under the reign of Domitian that John the Apostle was banished to the island of Patmos where he received the vision of the Apocalypse, which is the book of Revelation. Now, it is recorded that once a year, the Roman citizen was to burn a pinch, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a pinch of incense on the altar to the Godhead of Caesar. Every citizen was to take a pinch of this incense and burn it on the altar to the Godhead of Caesar. And having done so, when you did that, you were given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed or that you had performed your religious duty. All that Christians had to do, listen, all that Christians had to do was to burn that pinch of incense, say, Caesar is Lord, receive your certificate, and go away and worship as you pleased. That's all a Christian had to do. But that is precisely 
what the Christian would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord. There was only one kurios. It was Jesus Christ. They would not give any man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Yeshua, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone. They would not even formally conform. And if they refused, they could be left financially bankrupt and destitute, which we find out in church history and, and, and the annals of church history that many did lose all that they had and even be put to death for not burning incense to Caesar. And interestingly enough, as I said, the name Smyrna carries with it that idea of suffering. It carries with it the idea of suffering. Myrrh, again, I'm just repeating a little bit, but myrrh was used in the embalming of the dead and it gave off a sweet smell. But before that smell could be released, it had to be crushed. Crushed under great pressure. And that is what we will see happen with this church. As they are crushed, they would radiate the fragrance of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder, folks, why Jesus would receive as one of his gifts after his birth by the Magi, by the Wise men from the east, one of the gifts was what? Myrrh. Gold, frankincense, which was another type of compound, and myrrh. It reminds us that God, in all of those symbols, was showing us why Jesus came to this earth. The myrrh reminds us that he came to suffer. And in essence, came to die. And so this letter to the church of Smyrna was personally written to people under great pressure. Every word that Jesus speaks to the suffering church is one of appreciation. Only two of the seven churches received letters of total commendation and encouragement. That was Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. So let's get into this now by looking at Christ's salutation and identification. In verse 8 it says that unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, the description of Jesus that is taken from Revelation chapter 1 is that of being what? The first and the last. It is that of being the beginning and the end. He is called the Alpha and the Omega to remind us that He is the first and the last. The one who has conquered death. The one who has conquered death. How important these words must have been to this church that had, that had and still was suffering so much persecution. Here is a letter from the first and the last. Here is the letter of the one who was dead but now is still and, and now is and is still alive. So it is thought. Now, the number is a little high, and, I, and I've been looking through a lot of different things to try to be a little closer to the number. But some people have said that it is thought that some five to six million Christians were actually put to death by Rome for their faith in Jesus Christ 
in just over 200 years. I'd have to say that that might have been maybe over 400 years or 500 years. Maybe it would even get close to that. The numbers are, are hard to say, but, uh, but it could be quite possible that if it wasn't in the millions, it was at least in, in the hundreds of thousands over a period of 200 years that uh, a number of Christians were put to death by Rome itself. And for this city of Smyrna, they too were feeling that pressure immensely. And, and to hear that Jesus conquered death and the eternal God was extending that gift to his children of overcoming death, that had to be a great comfort and hope to these people. I think of the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 verses 18 and 19 where Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. Now remember, he's saying this before he goes to the cross. He says, but you see me because I live. You shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. Now if Jesus lives beyond his death, as we know he rose again on the third day, then the promise to those who believe in Him is that of eternal life. That though these bodies are, may die on this earth, those who die believing in Jesus will live again, will rise again, just as Jesus rose. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, there in Bethany when Jesus arrives late, as some people would have thought. Oh, he came late to his friend Lazarus, who he heard was sick, but he doesn't come until much later, and by the time he gets there, he's what? Dead! Lazarus is dead! And Jesus speaks to his sister Martha, and he states to her these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? In other words, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because if I conquer death, and you believe in me, I conquer death for you, and you will conquer death as well. And these were and are words of hope and comfort. The believers in Smyrna, again, were being crushed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Not like anything that we've ever experienced if we've ever had any persecution toward us at all. Maybe we've had some tribulation. Maybe we've had some troubles for being a believer and speaking to people who don't want to listen about the message of the gospel. But but not like those in Smyrna. They were being crushed. But here's the thing. Their Lord had already been crushed for them. Their Lord had been crushed. And when Jesus was crushed in His death on the cross, He released the fragrance of eternal life to the world. This descriptive metaphor is used by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. When Paul says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, notice, for a sweet-smelling savor. 
The fragrance of Jesus Christ. The fragrance of life. The fragrance because he was crushed. There would be no fragrance if Jesus does not get crushed on our behalf. There would be no fragrance that would be of any benefit to us. But Paul says, listen, we can walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given himself for us an offering. We can walk in that same kind of love. We can, we can walk knowing that even if we are crushed, even if we have to die for the sake of others, we're still dying for the sake of Christ. But even if we die, it's going to release a sweet-smelling savor because Christ's death released that savor. Isaiah also spoke of Jesus being crushed. This was, of course, the prophecy of it all. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now the word bruise there in the Hebrew is the word daka, which means to be crushed or to crush. And so it is the same word describing that which is crushed. You want to get the best oil from olive olives, you have to run those oil, those olives in an olive press and a large stone goes over them and crushes them. That was the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is talking about the oil press. What happened in the, what happened in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus? There he was, he was being crushed in essence under the weight of of the knowledge that he was going to have to go to the cross and die for sinners. And even Jesus, while he was there suffering that pressure, we were told in the Gospels that, that, that he even was sweating droplets of blood. because of that pressure. And, and so here it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. Why? It says, he has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If Jesus is not crushed, we will have no hope at all for salvation. We will have no hope for eternal life. If Jesus is not crushed. That is why. It says that it pleased the Lord. Because it pleases the Lord. In that he is eternal. And knows the end from the beginning. And the beginning from the end. Knowing that Jesus. Though being crushed for us. Would rise again. From the dead. So that has to be our understanding of. Of, 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 this, of this church in Smyrna, of what it was going through. And why Jesus writes this letter in the way he does. Because the next thing that we see is, is this con commendation. He commends this church in verse 9. And he now speaks. By the way, back in, in verse 8, we saw the salutation. Write this to the church of Smyrna. We saw... The, uh, uh, the, uh, the identification of Jesus was the first and the last. He who was dead and is now alive for that reason. We talked about that. 
So verse 9 now is the commendation. And he says, I know thy works. Now some of your translations may not have the word works there, but that's okay. It's important for us to always know that God knows all of our works. He knows all of what we're going through. In this case, it's, it's, it's wrapped up in the word tribulation. So I know thy works in tribulation. That, that is one complete thought there. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty. I know your poverty. But then he puts in, in parentheses, but thou art rich. I know your poverty, but you're rich. He inserts this parenthetical thought. I didn't have parentheses in those days, but the thought is there. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So here, here we find the Lord Jesus commending them, those in the church of Smyrna, for their faithfulness under great testing. Their faithfulness under great testing. He knew their tribulation and their oppression. He knows exactly, by the way, for us, He knows exactly what we're going through when we're going through troubles and when we're going through trials. He's fully aware of the difficult times that come across our own paths. And if you think you're getting more than you can handle, look at what uh, the church of Smyrna was going through because it was a lot more than I think many of us are going through, at least from the standpoint of persecution for Christ. Not to say that we don't go through it. But it is a wondrous thought that he knows and is aware of our circumstances. God knows and God is aware of all of our circumstances too. And what he tells us is this, and we need to awaken to this because I've talked to some Christians that just don't believe that there's any, you know, any hope that God has actually somehow forgotten us. But this little scripture here is telling us, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten you. Jesus hasn't forgotten any of us in this room today. Of any of the struggles or trials or circumstances that we're going through, He has not forgotten us. Well, the church of Smyrna was not forgotten either. Because if you can imagine going through so much pressure, so much tribulation, so much persecution, they had to be encouraged. God has not forgotten you. Jesus has not forgotten you. I mean, they had cruel enemies, didn't they? They had cruel enemies who were aggressively causing their affliction and, and its resulting stress and even distress. This church was in distress because of what was happening to them for their faith in Christ. They had no monetary resources to resist or fall back on. They didn't have enough money, in other words, to resist all of this oppression. They didn't have enough monetary resources to, to fall back on because they were, they were being actually robbed. Their poverty was abject poverty. Tokea is the word in the Greek that, that, uh, that John uses for poverty. And it means indigence to the point of beggary. Indigence to the point of beggary. Being so poor, having practically nothing, if anything at all, to the point of needing to beg just to stay alive. That is the word that, that John uses here. So either they were from a poor class of people, as some think, or they were extremely poor because their goods had been taken through persecution. 
Well, that is more likely what had happened. I want you to think of something when, when you think of how they were treated. That if they were treated in this way, that, that they were, all their goods were taken, their home, their, their valuables were taken from them because they were Christians, because they believed in, in Jesus Christ and would not bow their knee or bow their, themselves or offer incense to, to the Caesar, then it, it makes us have to think that this same pattern was followed by the Nazis against the Jews during the Holocaust. Time and time and time and time again, if you read about the history of that, the Jewish people that lived in Germany in particular, some, many in, in Poland and in other European countries, uh, the first thing that they did, that the, the Nazi regime did, was they confiscated the goods of the Jews. And then they, and I'm just being kind of generally simple here, but then they just herded them all and took them to, to their death camps. But they took all that they had and they became poor. They were in abject poverty. From one day they were wealthy to the next day they had nothing. And eventually they were just killed. And this idea is more in line with a statement made by Paul in Hebrews chapter 10 than to think that they were all just poor. Because remember, Smyrna was what? A rich city. It was a rich city. And Paul in Hebrews 10 verses 33 and 34 says this. Speaking of, of, of how the Christian is, is, is looked at in the world. He says, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion on me in my bonds, or of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Now, when, when, you, when you have the spoiling of goods, you know what that means? That means the, the goods that they had were taken as spoil. That's why when, when somebody, uh, or when, when a, when a you know, band of pirates or you know, even nations go and plunder a, another nation and they take their goods, what do, they, what do they call it? The spoils. The spoils of war. So the spoiling, uh, they took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have a, in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So it gives us, a, a, again, a little bit of an idea that, that the people in Smyrna were not poor just because they were poor, but they were made poor because they believed in Jesus Christ and all of their goods were taken. So that in itself becomes a, a position of, of, of pain and, a, and of disgrace and of shame, maybe to the people doing it to try to cause that, but to a believer in Jesus Christ, we, we look to heaven and we say, well, you can take everything I have. I still have heaven. I still have Jesus. I still have the love of Christ. I still have what God has given me for eternity. So these are the things that we need to begin to realize the, the early church had to, had to deal with. And not only did they stand against this persecution from Rome, but also, as, as is mentioned here, the, uh, from those who called themselves Jews. 
Because in fact, Jesus says they are of the synagogue of Satan. That's a pretty strong statement. It's a pretty strong statement that he says that. He says they are not Jews. They're not really Jews. But they're of the synagogue of Satan. In other words, these Jews that he's speaking of did not have a relationship with Jesus. And they were persecuting those who did. Now, they may have been born Jews, but they forsook the true faith of God that would have led them to faith in his eternal son. So it tells us that this, this particular synagogue in Smyrna was not really intent on following and leading and listening to the God of Israel, but more to whatever gods that they, uh, that they followed. It is quite possible that many of these particular Jewish people in this particular uh, synagogue in Smyrna went and offered that pinch of incense to Caesar just to get the certificate, stay alive, keep in business, keep all the things that they wanted to have, and then go to the synagogue and, and you know, because that once you had the certificate, it didn't matter, you see. But what does that tell us about their hearts? That's hypocritical. That is the hypocrisy of, of those people that would kill the Christians along with the pagans. And, uh, and the Lord Jesus was not pleased. These Jews were slandering and they were spreading false rumors or reports about the Christians. Satan was poisoning their minds against these believers with his lies. So Jesus makes this very strong, strong statement. And it brings to mind that uh, we need to remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 2. Because again, if, if we look carefully at what, uh, what he says there about, about, these, um, about these Jews in, 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 in chapter 2. And let me re- remind you what it says. It says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. Okay, so I wanted to stress that. They, the, blasphemy, uh, the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. They're not Jews. Well, how can he say that? Well, here in, in, um, in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, this is what Paul, a Jewish believer, says. He says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So there Paul defines for us what a true Jew is. And John tells us that there were those who said they were, but were not, because they were only outwardly, but inwardly they were not. And yet a Jew is one inwardly, and not just went outwardly. So Jesus quickly reminds them of this. And then he reminds them of one other thing. He quickly reminds them of the precious thought that they are indeed rich. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Their spiritual condition stands in sharp contrast to their economic condition. And I think that that's something that we need to take to heart as believers in Jesus Christ. 
that what matters more than anything else is our spiritual condition, not our financial condition. God will take care of the financial condition. We need to make sure that we lay before the Lord our spiritual hearts, that He would every day bless those hearts. Our richness doesn't come from what we can gather or what we can accumulate in this life. Our riches are actually being stored up in heaven, aren't they? This is what Jesus taught. Where neither moth nor rust can destroy. Where no one can steal. As a matter of fact, there's something that, uh, that Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 21. On the, on the contrast, he says, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself. If, if a person lays up treasure for himself like that man who says, I am rich and I have no need of any goods. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. That's going to be my life because I've just stored up everything, right? And the next night, what happens to him? He dies. And that's when Jesus says this. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And Jesus is saying, we need to be rich toward God as the church in Smyrna was rich toward God. Jesus thought of them as rich. And if Jesus considered them rich, then what? They were rich, right? If Jesus considers us rich, then we are rich. As someone once said, and I, and I put this quote up here for you, our estimation of ourselves is far less important than God's estimation of us. Isn't that something? Our estimation of ourselves is far less important than God's estimation of us. We may not think very highly of ourselves, or we might think too highly of ourselves, right? Yes? No? Maybe so? Some people think very low of themselves, and God says, no, 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 no. I see it differently. I see you rich. Others may think of themselves greatly. And Jesus says, you're not so great. Right? You're not so good. As a matter of fact, the last church that has sent a letter, Laodicea, what did they say? We are rich and we have need of nothing. And Jesus says, but you're poor and you're blind. Oh, and by the way, you're naked. Spiritually. Poor, blind, and naked. You see, our estimation of ourselves is far less important than God's estimation of us. And His estimation of us is always right on. If we suffer for Christ, He says, that's okay, you're rich. If we humble ourselves as we're supposed to, He says, I'll lift you up. Because I see you higher than you see yourself. And that's a good thing. I see you higher than you see yourself. But if you exalt yourself, the Lord will do what He needs to do to humble us. At times even humiliate us. Because we've gone a little bit too high in our estimation of ourselves. 
The next thing that we see in our text is the command. And I added another word, counsel. There is command, there is a command, and there is counsel here. So let's look at verse 10. The counsel carries over into verse 11, so we will tie that up together at the end. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. So who are they fighting now? They, <laughs> they're not fighting, but I mean, who, who are they dealing with? Who are they being crushed by? They're being crushed by the Romans. They're being crushed by the Jews who are not Jews. And they're being crushed by Satan himself. It says, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That's a hard passage to want to take to heart. But Jesus tells the church that more persecution is coming. That's what he's saying. More persecution is coming. The devil is going to arouse the unbelievers of the world to attack them for ten days. Now, that's an interesting idea. Ten days. A lot of people have thought, you know, here, here this ten days is symbolic. It represents something. So it's quite possible that it represents the ten Caesars that the church would have to, you know, have to deal with over, over those no, many number of years of the, of, the, of the emperors of Rome until they're finally no longer uh, around. Uh, that's a thought, but, uh, you know, some believe that. Others believe that the ten is, is talking about... Uh, in, in maybe hundreds of years, you know, so over a period of, uh, you know, a thousand years or a hundred years or whatever, um, you know, this is going to be taking place. But the idea here of the way that this, the, the construction is of this, of, of this uh, verse is that it just gives us an idea that there's going to be suffering, but it's just going to be sh- short, ten days. Uh, the idea is that of brevity, in other words, just a short time. But notice a significant fact. What's even more important about this fact is that God was allowing the persecution, right? God's allowing the persecution. And the reason is given. That the believers might be tried. But what does this mean? Well, why does God allow these things to happen? God allows persecution so that they would draw closer and closer to Him. Anytime we we find ourselves in that kind of situation, we need to draw closer and closer to Jesus. And when we do so, we need to learn more of Him and from Him. And secondly, God allows persecution so that our faith could be strengthened. He allowed that persecution so that they would be strengthened in their faith more and more and more. And by such, the believers could be stronger in their witness to the world. When the world sees us not backing down, but continuing to rejoice in the Lord, even though we're facing tremendous trials, it becomes a witness to the world. When some unbelievers saw the believers suffer for the hope of salvation, the Holy Spirit would be able to use their suffering to speak to them. How many people who were persecutors of Jesus and of Jesus' people became Christians themselves? Do you remember Saul of Tarsus, he was the major one. He he persecuted the church, even to the point of death. 
And he welcomed that death of the Christian until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life was changed. Did he suffer persecution? He sure did. Quite a bit. He talks about it in, in his letters to the Corinthian church. All of the things that he dealt with, all the things that he had to go through. book of Acts tells us about it too. But he did not let that witness get away from him. Can you imagine him being chained to Roman guards in homes? The one that you were really had to, uh, you had to feel sorry for were the Roman guards. Because they couldn't escape Paul. And what was Paul going to do? He was going to tell them about Jesus. Oh man, I've got that duty with that apostle. Oh no. I won't be able to get away from him. How many of those guys came to Jesus? I'm sure a few. That's the kind of witness that the Lord prepares in us when we stand firm in our, in our witness. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. That's not strange at all, he says. Rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And then the counsel of Christ is a clear message to the church when it is being persecuted. And what is the counsel? Do not fear, but be faithful. Do not fear, but be faithful. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Don't fear those things. Not to fear may seem difficult when one is in the midst of being persecuted. But remember who Jesus is. Who sent them the letter? The first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was dead and is still alive. That's who sent the letter. That's who said, I'm going to be with you. You've got nothing to fear. And so coupled with that counsel and is this commitment. And let's look at verses 10. Oops, I forgot. There, there it is. Don't be fearful, but be faithful. But the commitment is in verses 10 and 11 together. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There's the admonition to heed. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now what Jesus says to the church is important. But what he doesn't say is equally important. What Jesus doesn't say is equally important. The Lord doesn't have a single word of rebuke or correction for the believers in Smyrna. Oh, he corrected Ephesus, didn't he? He corrected the people in the church of Ephesus. But he gives no correction and no rebuke to the church of Smyrna. All he has is a promise. All he gives them is a promise, the promise of a crown and the encouragement to be faithful unto death, which is literally, become faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
Now you, you may think it just sounds like, okay, just go ahead and go die and then I'll give you the crown of life. Well, being faithful unto death is more than that. Because God is the one who's going to be with you while you witness the Lord wherever it may be. What he just means really is to be faithful until he takes us home. However that might be. Whether in persecution, whether in martyrdom, or whether in just old age like, you know, John. Even though we'll talk about John's, uh, the attempt of John's martyrdom later. But, uh, you know, he died an old man back in Ephesus. But here's the thing. It is when the Lord takes us. Just be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. Faith will banish fear. Write that down. Faith will banish fear. We oftentimes wonder, how do I deal with this fear that I have for one thing or another? Well, do you trust the Lord? Because faith banishes fear. And, and here's the thing. Faith and fear cannot coexist. Think about it. Faith and fear cannot coexist. There's one little, one little verse of Scripture in Psalm 56. And it's verse 3. And the psalmist said, What time I am afraid... Uh, New King James says, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. So when I'm afraid, I trust in the Lord, then I'm not afraid anymore. Do you see how, how they don't coexist? You can't fear and have faith. In other words, if you have fear, trust in the Lord, then you don't have to worry about the fear anymore because they don't coexist. Do you see that? Aren't you glad that God allows us to move from fear to faith every day? But, that, but that's a, a wonderful thing. What time I'm afraid, whenever I am afraid, Lord, whenever I face those fears or those trials or those troubles, I can trust in you. And I will trust in you. And when I trust in you, it banishes that, faith, that fear. That faith just banishes it. Sends it off. I'm not afraid anymore. Time and again, Old Testament, New Testament. Time and again, Old Testament, New Testament. What do we hear? Fear not, fear not. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be afraid. What did he tell his disciples? Don't be afraid, I'm with you. He told them that a few times before he went to the cross. He tells them that after he went to the cross. When he rose again and he shows up and, 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 and visits with them, he says, don't be, don't be afraid. And then he says, I'm going to give you the crown of life. The crown given by Jesus is the crown called the Stephanos. Stephanos, the name Stephen means this, you know, it comes from this word Stephanos. It is the victor's crown. It is the laurel crown that was given in the Olympics to the, to the one winner. They didn't have bronze or silver. They just had one crown. Whoever won an event, they got the victor's crown. And it was a laurel wreath. Uh, you might say, well, that, you know, give me the gold thing, you know. But in those days, everybody looked to you. That's a victor. That is a victorious person. 
The glories of eternal life stand in sharp contrast to the short trials of even martyrdom and erase the dark shadow of persecution. And even though the hostile demon-controlled world in its rejection of the Christian message can inflict persecution and terminate life in this world, those who are faithful in their opportunity to receive Christ in this life are promised that they will not be overcome with the second death. The second death is explained later in Revelation chapter 20. It's the judgment of all unbelievers from all time before the great white throne. But Christians have no fear of death or even of the second death. Death for believers. Please remember this. Death for the believer is a departure for home. It is a departure for home. Listen to the words of Jesus. We're going to close with this. In John 3.36, Jesus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, if we're going to take Jesus' words to their full value, He's saying, if you believe in me, I will give you eternal life. But if you you do not believe in me and do not trust in me, then I'm giving you the opportunity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've given you the opportunity. But if you do not believe, then the wrath of God abideth on you. Choose life. Do you know that those words are actually found in the Old Testament? Given to the children of Israel to choose life instead of choosing death? We are called as believers to always choose life because the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of creation, the God of the church is a God of life. So when given the opportunity, we need to choose life. The people of Smyrna knew that if they died, they would be with the Lord. That's life. They knew that if they gave their life for Christ, they would be with the Lord instantly. And the crown of life would be theirs. There are a number of crowns, and we'll talk about those as we go through the book of Revelation. But there's this one crown that Jesus says. It's the simple little crown. But it's major. It's life. Remember last week with the church of Ephesus? Jesus told them to return to their first love. To remember, repent, and repeat, or he would remove their light and their witness. They refused. And the church of Ephesus is no longer in existence for its light went out. It's no longer in existence there. There may be a city somewhere close to Ephesus, but the Ephesus in itself and the church itself, the light was taken out. In history, it was taken out. But the church of Smyrna, this persecuted church, I'm happy to say, still remains today. Their witness still remains. As I said earlier, the city is called by its Turkish name now, Itzmir which means Smyrna. 
has a population of over 200,000 people. And in the church, there are some 1,500 people. Their light still shining bright in a dark nation. And the nation of Turkey, by the way, is getting darker and darker. So you see there's still persecution going on there. But this time it's not by the Romans. In fact, it is by the Muslims. But the church of Smyrna remains faithful. So God's word is true. To the very end, it is true. So it is important that if Christ's word is true, that we believe the necessity of coming to Jesus Christ tonight if we haven't done so already. We need to come to the Lord. And we need to know the one who loves us with an everlasting love. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father.